Several years ago, I came across a, a great uh, series of books called the Terrestria Chronicles. Any of you ever heard of that? Terrestria Chronicles? It's kind of like, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the form of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, kind of that sort of nature of, of genre. But in book number four of Terrestrial Chronicles, I, I really enjoyed this, this part where Satan, well, his name's not Satan in the book, but Satan is strategizing in, in the book to take down King Emmanuel. And I just want to, uh, I've taken some excerpts out from the book. Uh, the, this uh, following excerpt is actually a conversation Kind of similar to what uh, C.S. Lewis does uh, in one of his books, it might sound familiar, where they're having this conversation between uh, uh, Satan and his, his demons on how exactly are they going to take down King Emmanuel and destroy his kingdom and uh, how to accomplish Satan's purposes. And so one of the demons named Captain Covetous, Captain Covetous stood up, in the midst there, and he says this, Most of Emmanuel's followers can still be tempted with promises of wealth and material possessions. They have an extreme fondness for riches. They become emotionally attached to their possessions, almost to the point of worship. They judge a man's worth by the amount of wealth and possessions that he has accumulated. We can capitalize on those weaknesses. We we will steal their hearts by transferring their love, their loyalties, and their trust from their king to their material possessions. Then Satan said, I love it. Now, what is your idea, Captain Confusion? Well, my strategy is to get Emmanuel's subjects so busy with activity that they no longer have time to think about their king. We'll get them to crowd their schedules with innocent but worthless activities. And as they become busier, their king will be forgotten and their love for him will grow cold. Captain Despair spoke next. One of Satan's most effective weapons is discouragement. A discouraged foe is a defeated foe. Our strategy is simple. We're going to have a massive propaganda scheme in place to spread the lie that Satan is in a greater position of power than Emmanuel. That the kingdom of Terrestria is about to fall to our master. And we will do everything we can to convince Emmanuel's followers that Terrestria is being overrun by the forces of evil. And that there is no hope for righteousness and virtue. Then Captain Apathy stepped forward to speak. Discouragement can quickly turn to apathy. A man who is defeated in mind and spirit is easily defeated in battle. And once Emmanuel's followers lose hope, they will quickly lose heart. And they will decide that it no longer matters whether or not they serve their king, since all is lost anyway. Then Satan said, My loyal servants of evil, Terrestria will soon be ours. Together we shall seize Emmanuel's throne by winning the hearts of his followers. We shall not storm his castles, nor march against his armies. We shall simply steal the heart of every man, woman, and child within the kingdom, and then Terrestria is ours. It's an interesting story, but there's certainly a lot of truth to the story. 
we have an enemy. We have three enemies, in fact, the Bible tells us. The world, your flesh, and then the third one mentioned here being Satan, the forces of evil. And we're certainly not on the playground. We are certainly in the, on the battleground, and the spiritual war continues to go on. But I fear as we go on and on and on, some of us, my, my, my concern is that some of us might be in that discouragement and despair stage. And as you look around at the world, as it just gets darker and darker, and as we, we approach the time of Antichrist and the tribulation, maybe maybe you're starting to lose hope. So Jesus has a wonderful message today for us that is filled with great hope. Yes, we are God is accomplishing his purposes and yes, this world is getting worse. Paul said so in Timothy that in the last days perilous times will come. We should expect that. That people would become lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. The Bible tells us that's the case. We should expect that. So, so as we see, see things happening in our world, don't despair, my friend, because you need to rejoice because our time is drawing near. Jesus is going to return. And yes, the tribulation will come. The Antichrist will arise. But that's all part of God's plan. But until then, there is always hope. Now, in in this passage we're going to look at here in Matthew 16, I, you know, Jesus' disciples were kind of in a in a a moment in Jesus' ministry when they kind of thought that maybe there was no hope. And as the disciples were walking with Jesus here in this story, you'll see a, a map on the screen here. They were actually way up in the northern part. Uh, in the in the city of Caesarea Philippi, and they at this particular time in Jesus' ministry, they were wondering why Jesus refused to overthrow the enemy, who of course was Caesar and the evil Roman Empire. Why isn't he establishing his own earthly kingdom? Well, despite Jesus' obvious supernatural powers and his claim of divine authority. It seemed like his his influence was getting less and less as his earthly ministry went on. So instead of becoming the conquering king's assistants, the twelve disciples were just this little band of nobodies who were beginning to share in Jesus' rejection. And they didn't quite understand. They didn't understand everything. And so in Matthew 16, this is really encouraging because Jesus assured the 12 here that he had a program, and that program was on schedule, and he was the one in control. And there was uh, they, they had every reason to continue their trust in him. And so it's a wonderful message that we need to hear too. Because King Jesus is on the throne He does have a program, and his program is continuing. And nothing is going to stop it. So, look at Matthew 16, verse 18, please. Matthew 16, verse 18. So, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. There's seven characteristics of the church here that should comfort us, should encourage us in the midst of these dark days we live in. First of all, we see here that Jesus is the foundation of the church. God's program is the church, and, and Jesus is the foundation of the church, verse 18 tells us, because it's, um, notice what he says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Since there's so much confusion on that particular phrase, let me just point out a few views to you. Uh, there's, there's books written on this subject that will bore you to tears probably, but let me just summarize for you some of these views. Number one is that who is the rock that Jesus is talking about here? Well, the rock, uh, some people think, is Peter himself. If you're familiar with the Roman, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholicism, that's their particular view. For over 1,500 years, they've held this view, and they've maintained that this particular passage here, that verse teaches that the church was built on the very person of Peter. And so Peter becomes the first pope, he's the first bishop of Rome, and uh, then, of course, you get the whole Catholic papacy coming out of this. And what a mess. Anyway, and so you get the... uh, and, of course, all the popes descending ultimately from Peter. And so because of that belief in apostolic secession, then the, the pope ends up becoming the supreme and authoritative representative of Jesus Christ on earth. And so when the pope, uh, when the pope speaks in his official uh, capacity as head of the church, then he, he is said to speak with divine authority that's actually equal to Scripture itself. Well, that's the first view. View number two is that uh, the rock is Peter's confession mentioned in the previous verses, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's interesting in Greek that Peter is uh, the Greek word petros, whereas the Greek word, that's the Greek word for small stone, whereas the word rock that Jesus uses is the Greek word petra, very similar. That refers to a huge rocky mountain. We're not talking about some little stone there. And, and so perhaps the most popular interpretation is that Jesus was comparing Peter, a, a small stone, to the great uh, huge mountainous rock not far from where they were, uh, on which he would build his church. So what is the rock? Well, some people believe that the rock is Peter's confession. That interpretation uh, has much to commend it, by the way, I, I must say, but it, but it seems more likely that, that, that uh, Jesus had a different point to make. I'll, I'll share my... Uh, what, I, what I certainly believe here in a moment. But when you actually compare Scripture with Scripture... Uh, you're actually going to get a different picture than than uh, that the rock is Peter's confession here. For example, in Ephesians, Paul says that God's household is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's Ephesians 2.20. And by the way, in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter is the leading apostle. He's kind of the spokesman for the group. He's uh, he's, he's out there, that's for sure. And he was the, the chief preacher, leader. You see at the beginning of Acts, he seems to be... Um, here in, in the present passage, that Jesus is addressing him as a representative of the twelve, as he often would do when he'd have these conversations with Peter. But my particular view, and, and I'm not alone in this, but um, I want to try to show you from Scripture that the rock is Jesus Christ. The rock is Jesus Christ. What a, what a good, solid rock this is. And so whether one interprets Matthew 16, 18 as referring to Peter as a small stone that is placed on this, this confession of Christ or as referring to his being one with the rest of the twelve, the, the, nevertheless, the basic truth is the same. The foundation of the church is the revelation of God that was given through the apostles and the prophets, and the Lord of the church is the cornerstone. Because it is His Word, the Bible says, that the apostles taught Jesus Christ is the true foundation. He's the living Word, to whom the written Word is bearing witness. And so the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, look at this, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.11, that no man, and by the way, that includes... Any apostle, any apostle or prophets included in no man, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the, the Lord is building the church on the truth of himself. And so one thing is clear, my friends, that the Lord did not establish his church on the supremacy of Peter and his supposed papal successors. <laughs> Uh, this was made clear, by the way, uh, if you just go a few chapters after this. It's interesting that uh, after Peter's con- great confession here, when the disciples uh, were walking with Jesus and they asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Peter replied, uh, or see, Jesus replies by bringing a small child and placing the small child before them. And Jesus said, Whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's in Matthew 18. And so if the twelve disciples had understood Jesus' teaching about the rock as, well, Jesus is talking about Peter, well, they would not have asked who then who was the greatest, would they? Of course not. So the reality is, by the way, Peter never claimed some superior title. Never did he ever do that. He never claimed some superior rank or privilege above the others. In fact, you read his epistle. In 1 Peter, he calls himself a fellow elder. Uh, in, in his second epistle, he calls himself a bondservant of Christ. <laughs> well, that doesn't sound like somebody who thinks he's, he's superior to the others, Right? And I think, by the way, the greatest argument is Peter's own testimony himself in in Holy Scripture. Now, how did Peter understand Jesus' words? 
Well, look what he says here. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Here's what he says, and I've underlined some key words for you. So Peter says, as you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, quote, Behold, I am laying in Zion a, qu- a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So notice, Peter does not suggest that he is the rock. He doesn't believe that. He, he knows what Jesus is talking about. In fact, he's, in, in fact, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, he's insisting, who is the stone? Who is the rock? Christ is that foundation stone of the church. He understood. A second characteristic of the church is that the church is certain. It's certain. Notice the certainty that Jesus believes here. Because he says, I will build my church. Verse 18. The last part of verse 18 says that. So, well, that wouldn't mean anything if we didn't understand who Jesus is. So may I remind you that the person saying this is the Son of God. He is God Himself who cannot lie and cannot be mistaken. And so therefore, when this God says something like this, He is to be believed. The church will be built, and it is the divine promise coming from the divine Savior. And by the way, in the Greek language, it's a future tense here, which is why my English Bible gives you a future tense verb when it says will. Jesus says, I will, future Hence, build my church. So Jesus was not saying, as some have said, that he had not built his church in the past. The idea, by the way, is that he would continue to build his church just as he had been doing. And and by the way, the word church there, uh, you need to understand, is just used in a general sense. Non-technical sense does not indicate that distinct body of believers that came into existence at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus was not emphasizing the time of his building so much as the point being is it it is certain it will happen. I'm going to do it. I'm doing it. And so no matter how liberal its outward supporters may be and no matter how corrupt our world may become and is, We can trust the words of our Savior when He says, I will build my church. There's a lot of implications and applications coming out of this. Let me me just think think with you about a few things. Number one here is, God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. It cannot fail. Yes, Yes, you might see churches close their doors, stop their programs, and cease to exist. That's local churches, but the universal church continues on. 
And this is a beautiful thought because no matter how oppressive and hopeless the world around us uh, becomes and, and, and no matter how dark the circumstances may get and, and appear, God's program will never fail. I love the truth from uh, all my readings of church history that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I'm thankful for people who really believe that and would would willingly and happily give their lives knowing that that is true. And so if God, if God so desires that you give your life for Him and His cause, rejoice in that. He's accomplishing His purposes. It's not the end. So God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. Another thought is from the text here is that no one in Christ's church should have the desire to build it himself or herself. That's not your job. <laughs> okay? Because notice the subject of the action here. Who's doing the building? Jesus says, I will build my church. Christ declared that He alone is the one who's building the church. And so, it doesn't matter how good your intentions may be. My friend, if you actually attempt... To build His church, you're actually competing with the Lord of the church. That's not a good place to be. It's not your job. By human reason, persuasiveness, or diligence, it's possible to win converts to an organization, a cause, or even a personality, but it's totally impossible to win a convert to a spiritual organization, which we call the church, apart from God's Word and Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Yeah, you might be a gardener. You might do some watering. You might do some planting. But God's the one who gives the increase. And so human effort can produce only human results. God alone can produce the spiritual results. And so it's a spiritual organization. You need to recognize that. And so if you walk in the Spirit and you're producing then the fruit of the Spirit, you can be sure you're living where Christ is building His church. That's a good place to be. It's not faithful believers who build Christ's church, but Christ who's building His church through those faithful believers. What a privilege, by the way, to be a part of that. Uh, It's a great place. So wherever His people are committed to His kingdom, and His righteousness, the Lord builds His church. And if believers in one place be, become cold or disobedient, like, like some of those churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, then Christ does not stop building. But He just starts works somewhere else. He's working throughout the world in various ways and means. And so His true church is, shall we say, it's always under construction. <laughs> And Jesus said this in John. He said, All the Father gives me shall come to me. Oh, what a great promise. All the Father gives to me shall come to me. And of course, at Pentecost, Peter declared that Christ builds into His church as many as the Lord our God shall call to Himself. So it was not the apostles, but the Lord Himself there in Acts 2 that was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. He was accomplishing His purposes. 
So Christ uses the faithful work of those who belong to him, but only he builds his church. And, and you see this over and over in Scripture. For example, listen to what Ephesians says about the church that Jesus loves here. Ephesians 5.25 says that he gave himself up, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Yes, people are able to build human, earthly, physical organizations. But the church is not that. Only Christ can build something that is eternal and spiritual. The third characteristic mentioned here of the church is that the church is an intimate fellowship of believers belonging to Christ. Because notice, there's a little pronoun there when Jesus says, whose church is it? I will build my church, Jesus says. My church. It's His church. He's the head. He's the architect. He's the builder. He's the owner. He is the Lord of the church. He's all those and more. And so Jesus is assuring His followers, and you today as well, that you're a personal possession. You have eternally been loved and cared for. You are a part of a greater body that's been purchased by His own blood. And you are, you are one with Him in this holy intimacy that um, the song we sang earlier in the hymn book, it, it's a mystic, sweet communion. Hard to explain. <laughs> Can't fully explain it. But Christ, the Bible says, is not ashamed to call you brethren. Wow. Hmm. And in Hebrews, he also said that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Wow. And that is why when men attack God's people, it's important we don't take that too personally, because it's, it's more so attack against Jesus himself. And when Jesus confronted the person who was called Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, Jesus understood that it was an attack against him, because he asked Saul, he, you know, on the road to Damascus there, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus says. So by persecuting Christians, Saul had been persecuting Christ. That's the end. That's really who the attack's against. Because it's his church. The fourth characteristic of the church is it's a continuous community. It is a continuous community. What a, what a glorious truth there. When Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here Jesus emphasized the identity and the continuity of his people. That Greek word there for church is ekklesia which just literally means the called-out ones. It makes them very special and unique and was used as a general and a non-technical term for any officially assembled group of people. Uh, so, uh, ecclesia was often used to public gatherings for people who might meet in a town 
hall, for example. And, and so in Matthew 16 here, it's containing the first use of that Greek word, ekklesia, in the entire New Testament. And so Jesus here is giving it no qualifying explanation. And so the apostles could not have understood it anyway, but it's most common in general sense. Uh, the epistles use the term, in a, of course, in a more distinct and specialized way, and, and they give instructions for the proper functioning of the church and the leadership of the church and so forth. But, but here at this time, when Jesus is with his disciples at Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus' use of ecclesia could only have carried this idea of an assembly. It's a community or a congregation. And so it doesn't really carry on and become a full meaning until more and more of Scripture is written. Only after the day of Pentecost did that word ecclesia take on a new and technical significance where we, we see the Holy Spirit comes, as Jesus says, as He promised He was going to send the Comforter, and He did. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, resides within all the believers who make up the church. The fifth characteristic of the church is that it is invincible. It is invincible on the whole, right? We're speaking generally here. Because uh, notice what Jesus says, that the gates of hell or Hades, some of your Bibles might say, shall not overpower it. Now there is some confusion on this as well, because the gates of hell or Hades has often been interpreted by some Christians to refer to the to the uh, to the forces of Satan attacking the church of Jesus Christ. But think about it, my friends. Do gates ever attack? What is the purpose of a gate? I mean, come on. Look, look at this in its context here. Gates are not instruments of warfare. The purpose is not to conquer. The purpose of a gate was to protect the people behind that gate, or sometimes we use gates to keep bad people in enclosed, confined areas, right? Um, it was sometimes used to keep people from escaping. So Hades here is referring to the abode of the dead. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily referring to hell, by the way, and uh, as it sometimes is rendered in other Bible translations. But when, the, when, the, when those terms gates and Hades are properly understood, it should become clear. Jesus was declaring that death, Hades, that was the place of the dead in, in, in a Greek mindset. That's where you would go when you died, to Hades, right? So Jesus is saying, death has no power to hold God's redeemed people captive. It can't hold you captive. Its gates are no, not strong enough to overpower and imprison the church of God. Why? Because the Lord has conquered sin. He conquered death, the Bible says. He got rid of those great enemies. Because Jesus says in John 14, Because I live, you shall live also. Oh, that's great words. So, Satan now has the power of death. And he continually tries to use that power in his futile attempt to destroy the cause of Christ and to, to conquer God himself and destroy the church. But Christ's ultimate victory over Satan's power of death is so certain 
that it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews speaks of that as something in the past. It's done. Look at this. I've underlined the word for you. Because in Hebrews 2.14, it says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had, past tense, had the power of death, that is, the devil. So yes, he had it, but Jesus took it from him. I'll take that back, thank you very much. It was just a temporary thing. You don't get to keep it. (laughs) It's mine. And it is that great truth of which Peter spoke at Pentecost as well, when in Acts chapter 2 he declared that God raised Christ up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Great words, right? Death was impossible to be held? Yes. It is the truth about which the Apostle Paul wrote as well in those great words in Corinthians. When believers were wavering in their belief about the resurrection. Is this real or not? So look what 1 Corinthians 15 says. It says that death is swallowed up in victory. And then he asked, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So where does the victory lie? In Christ. He's conquered your great enemies. All of them, including death. And so, what is Jesus doing here, though? Matthew 16. He's assuring these 12, whom he's, he's, he's out there with them, living with them, walking with them, ministering with them, and, and, and you as a believer today, that the chains of death could never permanently overpower them, could never permanently hold them captive. You might feel that way at times, but it can't. Now again, there's different views on this. Let me just quickly share with you, first of all, the Roman Catholic view that Peter and his successors had been given authority to receive or exclude individual people from salvation. That they, they had that power to do this in, this in this text here, as it mentions in verse 19. Oh, sorry, I skipped uh, the sixth. This is important to note, because I skipped over the sixth characteristic of the church, that the church has authority. It does, because uh, look at uh, verse 19. Here's the authority of the church, because Jesus says, I will give you, the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So like I said, there's confusion over this. So one of the confusion comes from the Roman Catholic position that Peter and his successors had been given authority to receive and even had the, the power to exclude people from heaven. So Catholicism teaches that there is no salvation apart from the fellowship of the church. And so exclusion from the church by excommunication means that you are severed from the body of Christ. So a person that dies in that particular state will go to hell. That's in their theology. They haven't changed that. It's still the same today. 
But praise God, the Protestant position teaches that believers have the authority to announce the forgiveness of sins to those who repent of sin and trust and believe in Christ. So what's going on here? Let's kind of fill this out a bit. See, the the Lord was still addressing Peter here as the representative of the twelve disciples, telling him that whatever you shall bind, uh, that is, what you forbid on earth, shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose, or, or the idea is whatever you permit on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he told Peter and the twelve here, all of them, and, and by extension all believers today as well, that they had the astounding authority to declare what is forbidden or permitted on earth. Wow. In the name of Christ, in His authority, of course. And so in giving instruction here, uh, carrying on, if you move on into chapter 18, He gives instruction for church discipline to all His people. It's interesting, Jesus said that if a sinning believer refuses to turn from his sin after they're counseled privately and after they are uh, uh, the two or three witnesses come and there's still no repentance of sin. Eventually it goes to the last stage before the whole church, the entire congregation, that the church not only is permitted, but Jesus says the church is obligated in Matthew 18 there to treat that unrepentant person as a Gentile and a tax collector. Ooh. Wow. That, that's serious, by the way. <laughs> uh, if, if, you're, if you're having a, a, um, a cultural barrier going on in your mind there, you need to understand that for a Jew, uh, they didn't like Gentiles and tax collectors. They were the, like the low of the low of, in, the, in the world, right? That, that's the worst, <laughs> And then it's interesting, in Matthew 18, he goes on to say something similar to the, to the church as a whole. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, a duly constituted church, a body of believers, has the right to tell an unrepentant person that you're out of line with the Bible, God's authority, and you have no right to fellowship with God's people. That's serious. It is to be taken very seriously. So Christians have that authority only because the head of the church has given us that authority. And so Christians can authoritatively declare now what is acceptable to God or what is right or wrong, uh, whether you're forgiven or unforgiven. That's the idea there when uh, Jesus is talking about, in verse 19, I'm going to give you those keys. Keys are a sign of authority. In fact, some, uh, sometimes it happens mayors of cities give keys to people, to special people, right? Why, why are they doing that? It, it's kind of like a reward. It's a sign of, uh, now you, you have like special access. You can go anywhere in the city, right? You, you have this awesome authority now to do that. And it's interesting that mayors even still do this. It's more symbolic uh, in many ways, but you get the idea, right? So the head of the church is giving out the keys. He's giving out this authority to do this. Let's think through some 
implications or application, if you will, here. Uh, Number one is that when believers are in agreement with God's word, they have the authority to judge. Now, it's important that you take uh, one of the verses in the Bible that gets ripped out of the context the most. You, you know it, right? Matthew 7. Judge not. Right? <laughs> Get, read the whole chapter, by the way, because Jesus actually goes on to tell you to judge later on. But um, God is actually here in agreement with believers when they make judgment. For example, if a person declares himself to be an atheist, Christians can say to that person with absolute certainty, hey, you're under God's judgment. You need to believe in Jesus. (laughs) If you refuse to believe in Jesus and you reject Him, you will be condemned for all eternity. You can say that with absolute certainty, out of love, hopefully. Because that's what the Bible teaches. We, we, We can say what Scripture teaches. But on the other hand, if a person testifies that that he has trusted Christ, Christians can say, hey, well, if if what you say is actually genuine and true, then your sins are forgiven. You are a child of God, and your eternal destiny is heaven. We can say that with the authority of coming from Christ. So when believers are in agreement with God's Word, God is saying, hey, I'm in agreement with God you. The last characteristic of the church is it is a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual reality because notice verse 20. Because Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Jesus warned the disciples they should tell no one that he was, the idea was don't tell them that I'm the Messiah. Don't tell them I'm the the, the long-anointed promised one of the Old Testament. By the way, most Jews, including even the disciples, expected the Messiah to come as some conquering king. Uh, They they confused the the millennial passages from from, the prophets like Isaiah, for example, that talked about uh, the millennial kingdom. They confused those with Jesus' first coming passages. I can't blame them. It would be easy to confuse them. You know, they thought that he was going to be some great military or political leader that's going to set them free from the evil Roman Empire. No, he's not coming as a savior to set them free from their bigger problem, which was their sin. No, that's not what he's coming for. So the people's expectations were warped, if you will. They were misguided. Jesus was the Christ. And so what is Jesus doing here? It's kind of like that verse in the Bible. It says, don't cast your your pearls before swine. <laughs> don't, don't, don't cast something you know, as nice as uh, you know, your pearls and your diamonds before the pig. Because the pig doesn't really care about such nice things. Imagine taking off your nice little beautiful engagement ring and putting it before the pig. Here, piggy, piggy. Enjoy. No, the, the pig doesn't care about diamonds and pearls and that sort of stuff. That would be foolish. And that's kind of the idea what Jesus is doing here. The people don't, they don't recognize the importance and the significance and just how special 
the Messiah is. And so let's think through a few things here. First of all, first application is that it's important you don't mix your faith with politics. Never make government your savior. <laughs> uh, see, if you mix your faith with politics, you actually can run the risk of losing your spiritual focus and your spiritual power. Yes, the Bible says government is ordained of God, but it is not to be an, an instrument of the church. See, that, that's, that's, that's a different organization from the church. Another thing to remember is that today there's no reason for us to preserve the secret identity of Christ. Right? Uh, so you don't need to carry on what verse 20 is talking about. We, we've been, in fact, we've been commanded by Christ to proclaim that He is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. He is the sinner's Savior. And so the Bible actually says it's our duty now and the privilege to call people to repent of their sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they do that, then they will be saved. And so if they do, the Bible says they will pass from death to life and they will find salvation. But however, the Bible says if you reject Christ, it means you will perish forever. And this is good news. The question is, do you believe it, though? And if you do, then go tell others. And I'm encouraged by passages like this and others because the Bible clearly shows us that God wins. God wins. Not Satan. Not this world. Not your flesh. God wins. And so, yes, the world has great evils taking place. And as we draw near to the time of Christ's return, perilous times are here. They've been here for a long time, since Paul's day. But the good news is, I want to just share one passage that comes from the throne of God. Listen to these words that is being sung in heaven, right there at the throne of God. They're singing about Christ in heaven as they are around God's throne, and look how it points to God wins. Revelation 5.9 says, By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God wins. He accomplishes His purposes, right? So, I mean, Satan and his demons and his captains, they can do all their scheming to try to take out Terrestria and, and God's kingdom, however you want to describe it in a book. But... God wins. Notice every tribe is represented there. That's what it says. And so tribe in, in the Bible here is referring to something that is a common ancestor. So all these common ancestors, in other words, are represented there. I mean, after all, think about it. We are one race. One human race, the Bible says. We all come from Adam. And if you carry on a little farther, we all come from Noah, right? But it's also languages represented. And by the way, God, God is so thorough, right? So if you think, well, I don't fit in that category of tribe, well, he just goes on and he says, every group in the world is represented here. And language refers to common language. It doesn't, doesn't mean that everybody on earth is going to be saved 
and is in heaven. That's not the point that is going on here. But you have every tribe represented, every language represented in heaven, and people groups. This is, this is a common race, in other words. All the ethnicities of our world are represented here. But it even refers to nations. So even within nations, you can have different ethnicities or languages, right? Even, even here in New Zealand, right? We've got various uh, tribes and languages and ethnicities represented in our nation. But this is talking about a common rule or a common government. So what's the point, my friends? God wins. He accomplishes His purposes. And nothing is going to stop Him. His church is invincible. That ought to be encouraging. Because you could die, the church could die, but God lives on, and He still accomplishes His purposes. So my friends, don't get discouraged. Don't, don't, don't succumb to despair as the world just gets darker and darker and there's more evil taking place, and you're going to see our government come up with stupid, insane laws and your workmates are going to probably get worse and worse, and society's just going to seem to be falling apart around us. That just means you're closer to Jesus' return. You were just getting closer to the tribulation and the Antichrist rising, and then after that, praise God, we get the millennium. So don't despair. Nothing can stop God's purposes. And we can rejoice in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, sending Jesus, who lived amongst us, lived the perfect life which we could have never lived, and died the perfect death in our place and rose again. We're thankful for his continuing ministry. Thank you for the comforter that he sent, who resides within every believer. And so we're thankful for this church, this living organization that you have set up and who you are the head of and you are using. And we're thankful that it is invincible and you are accomplishing your purposes in and through us, the church. May we understand what the church is, called out ones here, and what we are to do until Christ return. May we not give up. May we not grow apathetic. May we not be in despair. May we not fall prey to the propaganda lies that Satan is more powerful than Jesus. Because he certainly isn't. We look forward to the day, as Revelation says, when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. That is, is, that's his eternal home. That's what he deserves. He's going to get it. So may we believe that. May we live like, like uh, that, the, that the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against us. May we live like we do have the authority that Jesus is talking about here. May we understand these characteristics of the church and live them out in your power, through your enabling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.